0: Everybody. Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I can't believe that I've never talked about the Sex Pistols before right now. I'm just as shocked as you are, probably. Um, The Sex Pistols are one of the most revolutionary, influential bands of all time. And they only made one album. I mean, you can't get any more revolutionary and more inspirational then that, to be honest, they're probably next up to the Beatles in terms of how just so influential they are as a as a band. But not only as a collective, but like individually, like Johnny Rotten and said vicious, et cetera, et cetera, and everything that surrounds them. best you believe? I'm going to get into everything, everything in this episode. best you believe. I mean, whew, there's a lot of great information going out here. So, Sit back, relax, I have a feeling this is going to be a really long episode, so please sit back, relax, get a snack, do whatever you want to do, because I'm just going to literally get right into it. I first want to talk about the origin stories of two of the Sex Pistols' main men, Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious, because they're both very prominent people. So, I'm first going to talk about the leading man of Sex Pistols, Johnny Rotten. And obviously, that's not his birth name. (laughs) His name is not Johnny Rotten, okay? He was born John Lydon, and he was born in London on January the 31st, 1956. His parents were working-class immigrants from Ireland who moved into a two-room flat in Benwell Road in London. John spent summer holidays in his mom's native hometown of County Cork in Ireland, and it was here that he suffered a bit of name-calling from the other kids for having an English accent. You know, it was it was kind of difficult for him to really kind of wrap his head around because his parents were Irish, they had Irish accents, but he was born in London, so. It's interesting, actually, to learn that that was very prevalent for him growing up, that he was really disparaged by that whole kind of prejudice. And I, to be honest, never really thought about that until now. So, um, but yeah, so when he was growing up, he experienced a lot of discrimination, if you want to call it that, for having an English accent when he would be around other Irish kids. So in his autobiography called Rotten, No Irish, No Blacks, No Dogs, John wrote of being from an Irish background in London in the 1960s as such. Londoners had no choice but to accept the Irish because there were so many of us, and we do blend in better than the Jamaicans. And at the time, I just want to do a side note, at the time back in London in the 50s and 60s, there was a big group of Jamaicans as well as um, Irish immigrants as well in there. So I just wanted to put that a side note as well. So back to the quote here, he says, When I was very young and going to school, I remember bricks thrown at me by English parents. We were the Irish scum, but it's fun being scum, too. So John was the oldest of four brothers, so he had a lot of babysitting to do with his other siblings. So he would look after his other siblings when his mom was going through her bout of illness and she couldn't look after the kids. He said that as a child, he belonged to a local gang of neighborhood children and they would often end up in fights with other groups and they would beat each other up. It was just kind of, as he calls it, like an everyday kind of stereotypical day in the life of a kid back then. You would get into fisticuffs and, you know, beat each other up and do all that. And he thought that that was just a bit of fun, you know. He describes himself as a very shy and very retiring child and he also said that he was nervous as hell. He hated going to school where he would get caned as punishment, so he would get the cane. At the age of seven, John contracted spinal meningitis, and he spent a year in St. Anne's Hospital in London. Throughout that experience, he suffered from hallucinations, nausea, headaches, periods of being in comas, and a severe memory loss that lasted for four years. While the treatments administered by the nurses involved drawing fluid out of his spine with a surgical needle, that procedure alone left him with a permanent spinal curvature. I hear that that's just awful, even for women going through um, epidural, you know, the needle in the spine. I heard that is extremely painful. So I can't imagine at age seven ever going through that. That's, That's really horrible. The bout of meningitis that he experienced, he says, was responsible for giving him what he would later describe as his typical Leiden stare, like the crazy eyes, you know, like when you look at Johnny Rotten, like in any interview that he does then or now, he has these like crazy, crazy animalistic eyes Like you can just tell that there's a lot going on behind those eyes, like that's the stare that he's talking about. So with Johnny kind of being the oldest sibling in the family with him looking after his other siblings and the mom not really being around a lot because of her illness to take care of the kids his father was often away working on building sites or oil rigs Johnny kind of had to get a job not really immediately but like as soon as he was able to he got his first job at age 10 if you can believe it as a mini-cab dispatcher, something that he kept up for a year while the family was in financial difficulties. He disliked the secondary school that he went to in Islington where he was bullied, but at about 14, he said that he broke out of the mold and began to fight back at what he saw as the oppressive nature of the school teachers, who he felt instigated and actually encouraged the other children to be all the same. Pretty much, if you were against the mold of what school wanted you to be, then you were the outcaster and you were not welcome. That's pretty much what he would describe. And that makes total sense. That's still the way that it is today. In my personal opinion, from what I remember in school, that's definitely still the exact same way. As a teenager, he listened to a lot of rock bands. Of course he would. I mean, as a kid, that's growing up in a bit of a disparage situation. This is the thing that I've noticed throughout all of my episodes that I've ever done, is that a lot of these musicians, they have a really turbulent lifestyle, a really tragic upbringing, and they turn to music as a way to numb the pain, if you will. So Johnny is no stranger to music. He absolutely loved and loves still music. When he was a teen growing up, he was most drawn to bands like Hawkwind, Captain Beefheart, Alice Cooper, and The Stooges. And also, apparently, these were bands that his mother also liked, and that would embarrass him because as a teenager, you don't want to like the same things that your parents like, of course. You want to be different. Johnny was kicked out of school at age 15 after a run-in with a teacher, and he went on to attend Hackney College where he befriended John Simon Ritchie, who would be known as Sid Vicious. So the two of them were school friends. Um, so he went to Hackney College before he attended Kingsway College, so he went to a couple different colleges here. Johnny actually gave Simon Ritchie, right, okay, the nickname Sid Vicious, so he was the one that gave Sid Vicious his name, and he gave him the name Sid Vicious after Johnny's own pet hamster named Sid. So Johnny had a pet hamster named Sid, and he named him Sid after Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd, so it all kind of comes back to music. Um, So the two of them were friends from school. They hung out all the time. They actually began squatting in a house in Hampstead. And they often would kind of busk in the area just to get a bit of money. Alice Cooper was really the band that they would sing all the time, even though they were horrible at it. (laughs) They would sing anywhere that they could to get a little bit of cash on the side. And also Johnny was also working on building sites as well during the summer, assisting his father as much as he could to get some actual money. Some friends of Johnny's parents recommended that Johnny go for a job at a children's play center in Finsbury Park, teaching woodwork to some of the older children, which is weird. You wouldn't really think that he would be a school teacher in any capacity, but that's what he did for a short period of time. And funny enough, he was fired when some parents complained that somebody weird with bright green hair was teaching their children. I mean, it makes sense, but to me, that's just kind of a funny anecdote. So that's a little bit about Johnny Rotten's backstory, and now I have a bit of information on Sid Vicious and his backstory. And again, like I mentioned, he was born Simon Ritchie. He was not born (laughs) Sid Vicious, okay? He was born Simon Ritchie in Lewisham on May 10th, 1957 to parents John and Anne Ritchie. His mother had dropped out of school and joined the British Army, actually, And this is where she would meet Sid's father, John, who was a guardsman at Buckingham Palace and a semi-professional trombone player on the London jazz scene. Shortly after Sid was born, him and his mother moved to Ibiza where they expected to be joined by his father, but he never showed up. And he provided no financial support, so baby daddy was on the run, uh, unfortunately for that. So his mother reportedly sold marijuana to get by for the two of them while they were living in Ibiza. With the help of the British High Commission in Spain, him and his mother returned to England eventually, and they settled in Tunbridge Wells, Kent, where she enrolled Sid in school. In 1971, the pair eventually moved to Stoke, Newton in Hackney, East London, where Sid attended school. At this time, he began officially using the name John Beverly. So he wasn't even going as Sid Vicious at this point in time. He was going as John Beverly. By 1973, his mother's life was consumed by addiction to heroin and opiates. So this is kind of where Sid was getting exposed to drugs in a more personal sense. I mean, we all know, I think, what happens to Sid Vicious at the end of his life. He has a mother who is extremely addicted, and that's kind of where he gets exposed to that life, which is horrible. While Sid was at school, he told a counselor that he was contemplating suicide, and there was also claims that he was torturing and killing cats. I mean, I don't want to say f- potential future serial killer there because we all know, I think one of the telltale signs of a serial killer is torturing and killing animals. However, <laughs> he did not turn into a serial killer, so woo, we can thank God for that one. But that's um that's deep. He was he was only a young kid and he was going through so much. I mean, that's that's horrible. At 16, his mother kicked him out of the house, and so that's where he would meet Johnny Rotten and they would squat in different houses together, and bust on the street to make money. So now, on to the initial formation of the Sex Pistols. In 1972, school friends Steve Jones and Paul form a band named The Strand. Over the next two years, Steve and Paul would have other people come in the band to try and, you know, form something serious, but bandmates would often come and go. It wasn't until 1974 that Glenn Matlock officially joined the band and they would get their inspiration from 60s mods and rock and roll music specifically in terms of how they wanted to sound. They would namely take further inspiration from The Who and The Small Faces. So in 1975, Johnny Rotten was among a group of kids who regularly hung out around Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood so vivian westwood they had a clothing shop it was like um like a fetish clothing shop if you will it was called sex and it was on king's road in chelsea so that was kind of the happening place to be at the time in chelsea in london so johnny and sid would go there too johnny and his friends would kind of hang out around there they got to know malcolm mclaren and vivian westwood malcolm actually had just returned from a brief stint traveling with the American proto-punk band called the New York Dolls, and he was just starting to promote this small-time band called The Strand, right? So that's the band with Steve and Paul and Glenn, so he was managing and promoting them. So Johnny had just come in the store, and they were looking for a singer because they didn't have a singer at that point, point. and of course, this band would later be the Sex Pistols. Uh, Malcolm was very impressed with Johnny's appearance because Johnny was all about the dyed hair. He was all about kind of the punk aesthetic. He had the ragged look. He had the unique sense of style. He had a modified Pink Floyd t-shirt that particularly caught Malcolm's eye. The shirt was the band Pink Floyd. The eyes were scratched out on the t-shirt and the words I hate was written in felt pen above the band logo. So basically... I hate Pink Floyd (laughs) with the eyes scratched out, if you can imagine. Like very, very punk of him to do that, of course. So Malcolm was very impressed with his aesthetic. He asked if he could like audition for the band right then and there. And so Johnny performed a not so great, but I think very enthusiastic cover of Alice Cooper's 18 over the shop's jukebox. And boom, that's it. That's the story. Johnny was chosen on the spot right then and there to be the band's front man. So, now at this point in time, this is the early incarnation of the Sex Pistols. Sid Vicious would come later. And so now at this point, the band was starting to rehearse some music. Johnny provided the lyrics, with Steve and Glenn providing the music. Their debut show was in November of 1975, and from then on, they started playing in any club that would take them in. At this time, a band's clothes and looks could either get you a booked gig or not. So, if you can imagine... You know, they looked and they sounded extremely different. Like people weren't really sure of what to make of it. They either hated the band or they loved the band. And a thing about the Sex Pistols is they grew kind of a somewhat small cult following. So whoever loved them, they would like follow them. Um and funny enough, Sid Vicious was one of those extreme, like number one fans of the Sex Pistols. Like he would go see them. Anytime he could, obviously, he knew Johnny Rotten from his school days. But he like loved everything about what they were doing. He thought they were the best thing since sliced bread. Like he was so infatuated. And so along, they're kind of trying to get gigs at any club that would take them on. Right? They made friends eventually with some people in the crowd, and some of these people, notably, were Billy Idol and Susie Sue of Susie Sue and the Banshees. So they would become friends with the Sex Pistols. And so they were kind of now starting to somewhat, but not really, somewhat rub elbows with kind of those big names in rock music, like Susie Sue. Oh my gosh, she was huge. And Billy Idol was also huge, like massive. They were so crazy and different at the time. It's just, honestly, it couldn't have been a better match of friendships and camaraderie and music coming together. So, the Sex Pistols, they would just, again, kind of tour wherever they could really try to get their foot in the door. Anyone that would take them, based on their looks and their music, they would just play there. They didn't have a specific venue in mind or whatever. Like, they just played wherever they could. There was, however, really one super famous show that they were to put on at Manchester's Alessar Free Trade Hall on June the 4th, 1976. This concert is, like, known in rock music history as being one of the most significant events in music history because it was only about a crowd of 40 people that they played to, right? So it's very small. It's very intimate. However, the quality of people that were in that concert, that they were in the audience, huge people that would go on to be hugely famous, some of the names of people that were in the audience that night were Pete Shelley and Howard Devoto. They organized the show and actually they were in the process of auditioning new members for the Buzzcocks. So along with them, Bernard Sumner, Ian Curtis and Peter Hook, they were in the audience and they would later form Joy Division. Mark E. Smith would be in the band The Fall, so he was also in the audience. John Cooper Clark was in the audience, and obviously Morrissey of the Smiths was in the audience as well. Not only them, but Tony Wilson, who was the founder of Factory Records in the Hacienda Club in Manchester, he was also in the audience, and he saw the band for the first time at their return to the Manchester Lester Free Trade Hall on July the 20th. So absolute madness in the streets. Oh, my God. So, you know, as they were starting to kind of get their foot in the door, trying to get concerts and secure gigs wherever they could, it wasn't long before they started gaining the attention from record labels. However, the band was really, really certain. They were dead set on making sure that they would not just settle for joining any old record company. They didn't want to go with like an indie record company or a not so famous record company. They wanted like the big names. They wanted the best of the best. And one of the first record companies that they would sign a contract with was EMI. EMI came along and offered the band a 40,000 pound contract to sign in October the 8th, 1976. And they did. However, it didn't last too long. Their first official release under EMI was their hit single, Anarchy in the UK, and that was released November the 26th, 1976. It pretty much immediately was banned from all radio, of course, as you can imagine, and it received a lot of negative reviews from the press. They were like, what is this? If you can imagine, a lot of people back in England, I think there are still a lot of people, but maybe not so much, but like back in the day, there were a lot of royalists who just were very pro the royal family and keeping up that kind of facade of, like, loving parliament, loving the royal family. So any person that was against the royal family or against the parliament, the government, anything like that was, like, shock horror. Like, oh, my God, I can't even believe someone would be against this kind of thing and so if you can imagine when they released anarchy in the uk it was pandemonium like there was no way (laughs) that any i think mainstream paper would even like put them out or just it would be a mess if they even did so however even with those negative side effects the single still charted at number 38 so it wasn't a horrible placement on the chart It was, it was decent for a first single from the Sex Pistols. It was great. I think that this, honestly, their success initially, at least, came from the fans. Again, they had a lot of supportive fans. Those that were there in the audience that loved them, they would clamor on and they would follow them. So, you know, they put out their first single. It was soon withdrawn from EMI. EMI was like, no, we're not having this. EMI withdrew the single after the public's reaction to the song and especially EMI pulled back because of one of their famous incidences that was to happen on a TV interview with Bill Grundy called the Today Show. So EMI eventually kicked the Sex Pistols off of the label in january of 1977 but they honored their forty 000 pound contract so six pistols didn't care about that they were like all right well i mean we you know we honored our contract so i guess we can go so the bill grundy incident this was on the first of december 1976. how this all came about was queen the band queen was actually supposed to be interviewed on this tv show with the host bill grundy but queen canceled last minute because freddie mercury had a dental appointment the sex pistols were slotted in in their in their place so in this interview it was kind of obvious to me watching this and i think to everyone else that bill grundy kind of had it in for the sex pistols in a bad way he was like goading them on to kind of swear and be like rambunctious and to show as like to give them like a negative light to the public, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's this hoity-toity kind of posh person, and he's, like, talking down to them. Susie Sue was actually there um, as well. It wasn't just the Sex Pistols. Susie Sue was there. Bill Grundy was kind of making a pass at Susie Sue, like, in a weird, strange way. Like, it just wasn't comfortable at all. So, Sex Pistols just went in on Bill Grundy's all kinds of swears, and they were calling Bill Grundy out for being a weirdo. Like, this seriously went down in, in punk history as being one of the first publicized live interviews of a punk band that was to say, fuck you to the man. Like, how could you be this way? How could you treat us with such disrespect and go at Susie Sue like that, make a pass at her, you disgusting weirdo? Like, it was it was actually a really good interview in terms of, like, just seeing the punk movement really takes shape before your very eyes. It's on YouTube if you want to watch that. So at this point, again, the Sex Pistols got booted off of their contract with EMI, so they did not have a record label to keep making their music. It wasn't until February 1977 that word got out that Glenn Matlock was leaving the Sex Pistols. It was kind of said throughout the years that the reason why Glenn left was because... He wasn't necessarily a major fan of promoting some of the things that they were talking about in their songs. Um, I think Johnny Rotten maybe got the impression that Glenn was maybe too good for the Sex Pistols, and so that's why he was kicked out or he left. Like, it was a mutual understanding that he was to leave. In in either sense, Glenn Matlock was done by February of '77. So, he was replaced by Sid Vicious. And again, like, Sid Vicious was the ultimate Sex Pistols fan. Like, he even gave himself that pseudonym. Like, he was the ultimate number one Sex Pistols fan. He went to, like, every single show. He was always there. And also, Sid had the look. Like, Sid was, like, a tall, skinny kid who had that punk look. You know what I'm saying? Like, with the leather jacket, the shoes, the hair, the attitude, The gruff, the rough exterior, like, he had all of that going for him. And apparently women would flock all over him. So, you know, they thought that that was a plus. Sid actually was also a previous drummer for Susie Sue and the Banshees, and he was also a drummer for a band called The Flowers of Romance. So he kind of had a somewhat understanding of musical composition, but he wasn't like the best of the best. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like they got him because he could play the bass. He actually couldn't play the bass (laughs) at all, to be honest. He was actually notoriously really bad at playing the bass. Also, I didn't know this, but a fun fact, Sid Vicious is credited with introducing the pogo dance. You know, like in punk shows where you see like a bunch of people like jumping up and down, like with their arms, like straight against their sides like that's called the pogo dance he invented that at a club called the 100 club i didn't know that again sid vicious is just like so revolutionary he's on another level so now that the sex pistols were officially a complete unit as we know of them to be now with the addition of sid vicious the band signed to a different record label to produce their music and they signed with a and m records in march of 1977. Their second official single release was God Save the Queen, and it was originally called No Future. And God Save the Queen was set to be released soon after the contract signing. So they were really excited that they finally got another big time record label to produce them, like to put out their music. They were so happy. They went out to celebrate one day, like, yes, awesome, we got a contract, let's go. We have a song that we're working on, it's going to be great, let's do this. So to celebrate, the band decided to go on a mock signing outside of Buckingham Palace. And they also threw a drunken party at the offices of their record company. So ooh, as you can imagine, this caused a lot of strife between the band and the record label. They were like, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) What is happening here? So only after 10 days, not even two weeks after they signed their contract, the record label sacked them. Two record labels down, (laughs) and uh, what did they say? Third time's the charm, right? In May, they were finally signed with Virgin Records. So they had God Save the Queen. They couldn't release it until they got on Virgin Records. Finally released on May the 27th, 1977. And despite the popular rumor, the band actually didn't intend for the single to be released at the same time as Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee celebration. It just kind of happened that way by circumstance, again, from what I explained. So funny coincidence, actually. And kind of, again, in the same way that Anarchy in the UK went down, despite the song being banned on the radio, like, instantaneously, um, and the huge amount of backlash from critics and things like that. Even from members of parliament, like, I'm telling you, like, people were out for blood (laughs) with the sex pistols. Like, they were getting into fights, like, threats, like, it was bad. I'm telling you, members of parliament even came for them. Like, really, 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 really bad stuff was going on here. Amidst all of that chaos, God Save the Queen went to number two in the charts. So here we go. Now we have a bigger song. Now that their reputation has garnered them as this kind of, we don't give a fuck about the government and about this, that, and the third with their Bill Grundy thing on live television, now they're getting the followers and now they're getting the attention that they actually deserve with their music. And again, threats, threats of violence in the streets were thrown at the band left, right, center, middle, like diagonal, like everywhere. I'm telling you, back in the day, these royalists and these members of parliament were, were crazy. <laughs> they were like pro-royalty all the way. I mean, I'm sure people are still are like that today over in England. But I mean, I'm telling you, it, it was crazy. So the Queen's Silver Jubilee happened on June the 7th. And the Sex Pistols, being who they are, as a means of celebrating the Silver Jubilee, they showed off in the way that they only knew how. They acquired a boat somehow. And they sailed along the river Thames in front of the House of Parliament, Big Ben, you know what I'm saying? And uh, they played a couple of songs on the boat before police made their way onto the boat and told them to stop. Can you imagine that sight? It's kind of like, you know what that reminds me of? It's almost like the Beatles in their rooftop concert. You know how like the Beatles just did it and they wanted to cause some kind of, not controversy, but they wanted to make a kind of spectacle or or a last hurrah kind of thing like that's that kind of gives me the same energy as what the Sex Pistols did. That's very punk rock of the Beatles to do that. So now, okay, here we go. Now they're getting on to finally coming together to put material into their debut album, but before that happens, they put out two more singles. Pretty vacant was the third single that they put out and that was released on July the 2nd, 1977. It did a little bit less better than God Save the Queen. It went to number six on the charts, but this was the first song to get actual airplay on the radio. So that was monumental. So there you go. There was actually a promotional video that was made for Pretty Vacant. And it somehow, I don't know how, but it somehow got into the hands of the creators of Top of the Pops. And it was played live on the air against the wishes of the band themselves and the BBC. Their fourth single is Holidays in the Sun, and that was released in the fall, October the 15th, 1977, and that was released two weeks before their debut album was to drop. The song was actually inspired by a trip that the band took to the Berlin Wall in March of that year, and it was also inspired by the growing hysteria that the band was accumulating back in the UK, and it was just pandemonium everywhere. (laughs) And Holidays in the Sun went to number eight in the charts, so pretty good. It was in the top ten. So their most spectacular, most revolutionary debut album, their one and only album, it was recorded in the span of like random spurts between 1976 and 1977. It was mostly recorded at Wessex Studios. It was kind of like randomly recorded here and there in bits and pieces throughout the year when they could kind of get in the studio. So even though Sid Vicious, again, he had come to replace Glenn Matlock on bass, right? He was there to play the bass. However, Sid could not play the bass. And I didn't know this, but Sid Vicious actually does not play bass on this album. So one of the most revolutionary punk rockers, Sid Vicious of all time, we can't even hear him play on the album because he doesn't play on it because he wasn't good enough his skills were not up to par to make an appearance on the album and on actually most of the singles can you believe that (laughs) you 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 mostly heard Sid vicious via actual live performances so the band somehow talked sweetly to glenn matlock and said please come back please come back and record bass for the album we need you and they got him on under the pretense that he would be paid first before he would come on um, to record bass. Unfortunately, for some reason, they never paid him, so Glenn backed out of the deal. So instead, producer for the album Chris Thomas asked Steve Jones to play the bass instead. So Steve Jones was actually surprisingly so good on the bass that he played not only the guitar, but the bass on the whole album. So give it up to Steve Jones for that. The original title for the album was going to be God Save the Sex Pistols, but it was changed to Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, and I think that perfectly encapsulates everything about the band. It's perfect. The phrase Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols was thought up also by Steve Jones, so Steve Jones is just out here doing the most. <laughs> Um, A funny side story when Sex Pistols was recording at Wessex Studios was this weird like run-in that happened again with Queen. I don't know what's up with Queen and the Sex Pistols the first time. Queen was in the studio at Wessex and they were doing some material for an album. The Sex Pistols were also obviously at Wessex Studios to record their album. And one of the things that Freddie Mercury really wanted to portray in his music was that he wanted to bring ballet to the masses. He was a fan of ballet. He enjoyed that kind of um, theatrical music, but also the dancing, the outfits, you know, that kind of thing. He wanted to bring that kind of culture to the mainstream. So that's one of the mission statements of Freddie Mercury. And so jokingly, said Vicious comes over to where Queen is recording And he jokingly asked Freddie Mercury if he had managed to finally bring ballet to the masses yet. And in a fucking awesome quip, Freddie Mercury goes, aren't you Simon Ferocious or something? What are you doing here? He grabs Sid Vicious by the collar and he pushes him out of the door absolutely amazing. Go Freddie Mercury. That is one of the best mic drop moments that I've ever heard. Like that is so good. Aren't you Simon Ferocious or something? That's just a really funny like kind of side note to the whole, to the whole legend of Sex Pistols. It's just pretty funny. So all of the UK was eagerly awaiting the arrival of the Sex Pistols debut album, because again, they were making a name for themselves in the papers on TV, their singles were in the top 10, like people were seriously so eagerly awaiting this album. So much so that pre-orders for the album were up to about 125,000 advanced copies. So you know this album was going to do good when pre-orders were that high. I mean, that's really, really good. The album was released on October the 28th, 1977 and immediately charted to number one because of the eager anticipation for it. And it was a massive hit. However, you have to have some controversy when you're the Sex Pistols. So a lot of these record stores, they would obviously promote the album, you know, by having maybe a promotional poster or like they would put the record in the shop window. So obviously the title is Never mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols, right? So police actually went to one of these record stores and they saw this and they said, hey, that's profanity. You can't put that up there. You got to take it down. Some of these record stores banned the album from being put up at all. Um, Unfortunately, that kind of stopped them from word of mouth if you've never heard of them before or, you know, obviously selling the records that was impeding the sales a lot. So The band had to get a lawyer to prove that the usage of the word bollocks was actually not profanity. So when they took the police or, you know, whatever to court when they were in court for this, had to make the case for the band that the word bollock actually historically was a nickname for a priest, a clergyman back in history. Okay, like, when people say bollocks, I think we all know what they're talking about, but they had to make the case that, hey, historically, the word bollock actually is a nickname for a clergyman, but that also bollocks can mean nonsense, like, never mind the nonsense, never mind the stupid stuff going on, here's the Sex Pistols is basically what the title was supposed to say, and so, therefore, that was their case, and the case won they made their case they won they had their day in court they won that one and then therefore the album was swiftly unbanned so finally they actually got back at the man in a serious way so i think one of the things that makes the album so iconic is in fact the packaging like the album cover itself it's very minimalistic however it's done in an extremely punk fashion And I think a lot of people try to mimic that packaging today, Um, especially as well with the picture of Queen Elizabeth and how they kind of altered that picture to make it more punk, you know what I'm saying? So the original packaging for the UK release of the album was yellow and pink. However, in the US and Canada, the album was green and pink. And I thought that was interesting. I always wondered why in some instances it was yellow and pink. in others it was green and pink but it's just because of the different locations of where the album is sold for some reason they wanted to be different in the us and canada and have green and pink instead the artist for the album's cover was jamie reed so give it up to jamie reed and he made the choice to not feature a picture of the band as the cover but to instead use those contrasting colors and cut out lettering to make the impact and i think he did a phenomenal job I think we can all agree on some level, whether you're a punk fan or not, that the album Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols is considered to be one of the best in music history. It's, it's revolutionary, to be honest, and um, it inspired a lot of people. It inspired a lot of artists to make their own music. NME actually put the album in the top 13 greatest albums of all time. Rolling Stone put it at number two. Kurt Cobain of Nirvana... Specifically, listed the album in his personal top 50 of all time. And a massive side note Nirvana's super popular second album, Nevermind, was directly inspired by the Sex Pistols album name. Actually, weirdly enough, at the time that Nevermind the album from Nirvana came out, that angered Johnny Rotten. I don't know why that would anger him. I think he would be flattered, but for some reason, He was angered that Nirvana had the balls to do that. I don't know. Another major artist that I know we all know of, Noel Gallagher of Oasis, he was inspired by the Sex Pistols as well. And in 2013, he was interviewed for a program on the BBC called When Albums Ruled the World, and they were talking about, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. And Noel had some things to say about... Two of the songs on there, notably Holidays in the Sun and Pretty Vacant. Um, And this is what he had to say about Holidays in the Sun. As soon as that starts, everything that has gone on before is now deemed fucking irrelevant. And then he said this about Pretty Vacant. One of the first things you learn when you pick up the electric guitar is that riff. I made 10 albums and in my mind, they don't match up to that. And I'm an arrogant bastard. I'd give them all up to have written that. I truly would. So it can't be an episode about the Sex Pistols without talking about the extremely turbulent relationship between Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. I think we all know this. I think it's actually, to be honest, one of the most famous celebrity couples ever in the history of all time, probably next to Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love and that kind of dysfunctional relationship. It's like people want to like be them people want to be Sid and Nancy. And I think that's not what you should aim for. Their whole entire relationship was extremely tumultuous and dangerous because it resulted in the both of them dying. <laughs> so don't be like, don't aspire to be like Sid and Nancy, please don't. Um, so I have a bit of information on Nancy Spungen and her background just to kind of give some context to who she is and their relationship. So Nancy, of course, is American. I think we all probably knew that. She was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and her childhood was marked with fits of screaming, rage, temper tantrums, and violence. She would threaten her other siblings. She hated school. At one point, she threatened to kill her babysitter with scissors and beat up her psychiatrist. Yeah, a lot of problems. She would end up in a mental institution and a school for troubled kids before she would run away at about age 17 to New York City after she was expelled from college. And she was really young, of course. She was not of age. She was about 17 years old. And to support herself in New York all alone, she turned to sex working, and she was an amateur music journalist, and she was also... Most famously, a groupie for a lot of rock bands in the 70s at the time. In New York in particular, notably like Aerosmith, Bad Company, and The Ramones. She was all about that groupie lifestyle, all about going up to the shows, trying to get laid with the band members, trying to get in, make a famous name for herself. Like, that's kind of what she aspired to be. And uh, she succeeded in the end, but it cost her her life, so... Um, in 1977, Nancy flew to London following one of the bands that she would follow as a groupie, the band The Heartbreakers. So, she was obsessed with this band and they were going on tour to London. So, she would fly with them and it was here that she would meet the Sex Pistols. She also was good friends with Debbie Harry of Blondie as well. Um, She just kind of like made her way in. She like schmoozed her way in with all these people like Iggy Pop as well. I think there was a point where she was in with David Bowie, if I'm not mistaken, but she was big friends with um, Debbie Harry of Blondie. Um, She just was really in that crowd. And so she would meet the Sex Pistols. Johnny Rotten was her first conquest in the Sex Pistols. She turned her eye to him, but he had misses, and so he was spoken for and he was like, uh no. <laughs> he swerved her immediately. And so she's like, Okay. And she immediately turned to Sid Vicious. And Sid was very young at this point. He was extremely young. Very, 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 very young. He was only 21 when he died. So he was a very young kid. And to him, you know, he had the looks going on for him. He um he had the punk scene going on but he was no stranger to drugs either. He was no stranger to danger. He was no stranger to any of that lifestyle. But you could tell that he, underneath it all, was a very, like, smart, sensitive kid. You know what I'm saying? He was very in... He was very in tune with the world around him. He was very, like, down with, like, the politics. Like, he knew what was going on back then and stuff. So, you know, you could say... I guess that Nancy Spongeon was a bad influence on Sid Vicious and she introduced him more to harder drugs. But I think they both kind of played the same role for each other. Like Nancy was this young girl trying to also make her way and she was just kind of flocking in the groupie lifestyle and Sid was there kind of trying to handle fame and what fame was all about. Being with the Sex Pistols and the two of them I think was... Weirdly enough, a match made in heaven. Weirdly enough, I think they were kind of somewhat made for each other. It was, ter- it was turbulent, believe me. It was like, um, they were destined to this failure of their relationship, but I don't know, what more can I say? She was well known in the scene for procuring heroin and harder drugs and um, pills and things like that. Nancy and Sid were very inseparable. There wasn't ever a time that they weren't together, and it was at some point very soon in their relationship that Nancy and Sid would move in together. The rest of the band did not like Nancy at all. She was kind of the Yoko Ono of the Beatles, kind of, if you will, in terms of that, like, the band thought that Nancy was an intrusion and she was disrupting the whole process. At one point, their manager, Malcolm, had the idea of kidnapping her, and putting her back on a plane to new york but there was no time to enact that plan because the two were inseparable i mean they did everything that they could to like break them up um it wasn't until they could finally ban nancy from going on their u.s tour in january of 1978 and notably this tour would be the one that broke the camels back with the band they would not survive this tour Nancy was banned from seeing them, and so Sid was very upset with this decision. He actually, at one point, smashed his base over the head of a fan in Dallas, Texas. One of the things that I found really interesting that they decided in this U.S. tour to not tour the major cities. They didn't want to go to the major big venues in the major cities. They wanted to play small-time shows and and go to these small-time towns. They mostly toured in the South and in the West Coast places like memphis san francisco atlanta dallas texas like they were all about that for some reason doing the exact opposite of what you would probably expect for a breakout band to be doing in the united states but that's what they wanted to do and like i mentioned the band would not last the tour they broke up after a disastrous show in san francisco on january the 14th at the winterland ballroom venue Upon this breakup, Sid took it badly to the point where he overdosed on meth and was hospitalized in Queens, New York. He was not handling the breakup of the band well, as well as Nancy being banned from their shows. It just kind of like the whole thing with the band breaking up was in part because they were separating from their manager, Malcolm. They had issues with Malcolm, but also within the band too. Again, like there were drugs aplenty. Sid was with Nancy. It just wasn't a good situation. So it was kind of faded for the band to break up as well at this point. I mean, unfortunately. However, this wasn't gonna be the end for Johnny Rotten. In 1978, he formed a band called Public Image Limited, and that was a post punk band. And the first lineup of the band included bassist Ja Wobble and former clash guitarist Keith Levine. So interesting. You know, they had some pretty decent hits. They had A couple of albums and their debut public image was released in 1978. Not bad. So that's what Johnny Rotten was doing kind of somewhat immediately after the Sex Pistols broke up. So at this point, you know, Sid was back with Nancy and the two of them decided that they were going to live at the Chelsea Hotel in New York and they went there in August of 1978. And this is one of the things that I researched as well that I thought was really fascinating was John Lennon, of course, at this time, he was living in the Dakota in New York in the 70s as well. And he, after Sid Vicious's death, he talked about Sid Vicious and um, the Sex Pistols. And he was actually a fan of the Sex Pistols. Funny enough, he was. He liked them. So I think he kind of maybe had a bit of a kinship to Sid Vicious because the two were British nationals, and they were living in New York. They were getting the hang of the music scene there. And funny enough, like, John Lennon actually was like, hey, the Sex Pistols were what the early Beatles were in Hamburg. We were doing the crazy punk shit before it was called punk-like, before we had to adopt the suits and the Beatle mop-top haircut. So it was really funny um, that I found that interview of John Lennon talking about him really enjoying the Sex Pistols. I thought that was funny. I actually don't know exactly where the Chelsea Hotel is in relation to the Dakota, but I wouldn't think it was that far away. But I just thought that was funny that that was a cool like little thing for me to input there about John Lennon. We know what happens now at this point, right? So Nancy and Sid are just at the hip and they are doing drugs left, right, center, middle, diagonal, everywhere, every which way. Every every time that they could, they would be doing drugs. That's just what they were doing. Sid was also trying to start a bit of a solo career and Nancy was his manager um, and that wasn't going well. Sid notably has done the famous cover, My Way. That's Frank Sinatra, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, Yeah, there's a music video of him doing that and it's really cool actually. It's really, really, really awesome. If you've never heard that cover, it's an interesting punk take. Um, I think it's great. So that's kind of what Sid was trying to do, his own solo stuff. Nancy was acting as his manager. It just wasn't good. Their drug lifestyle kind of came to a bit of a crash on the night of October 11th. They were hosting a party in their small room. The hotel put them on the first floor because that's where a lot of those kind of drug addicts and junkies and partygoers would stay. They would put them on the first floor. So they had their little space on the first floor and Sid swallowed about 30 tablets and he went out like a light as guests and other drug addicts and drug dealers came in and out. Nancy was there, of course. So this is why there's a bit of a discrepancy on whether Sid did or didn't kill her. It just is hard to really say whether he did conclusively or not, because there were so many people coming in. It just, you know... So at around 11 a.m. the following day on the 12th, a lot of people were ringing the front desk of the hotel because there was distress happening in room 100. Nancy had been stabbed and she was lying in the bathroom with the knife still in her and she had bled to death. And Sid woke up that morning and he was like walking around the hotel in a daze saying that he had killed her. Um, you know, he's like, oh my God, I killed her. I killed her. I killed her. However, when the police asked him, like, did you kill her? Like, what's going on? He actually said, no, I didn't kill her. So this is also why it's hard to say, because I think he wanted to take responsibility because he thought, oh my God, it must have been me. But maybe he came to and thought, well, no, I maybe couldn't have. It's a bit of a weird, tricky situation. I still don't really know if he did or didn't. But either way, it ate him up mentally. He couldn't get over that, right? So because... He was kind of, I think, the number one culprit of this crime, of this murder. He went to jail Um, and his mom bailed him out. I don't know how she got the money, but his mother bailed him out and she got him drugs pretty much like right out of jail. Like, hey, son, I got you some drugs. You know what I mean? Like great mom of the year award right there. Sid was powerless to withstand this overwhelming loss in his life. And he attempted suicide a few days after her death. Um, but he would survive that. So he spent two months in Rikers Island prison and Rikers Island is no joke. I mean, Rikers Island is seriously no joke. You don't want to be there. Like that is bad news bears. And uh, again, his mom bailed him out in February of 1979 and his mother was like, hey, I got some dope. I got some heroin. You want to do this? Let's do this. Here's the thing too with his death that we can... speculate, but it's just like a gray area. Um, Sid was found dead from an overdose, but because he was in the company of his mother, it's kind of speculated that his mother killed him. Like his mother administered the overdose. Now, I don't know. That's just another side note to this. Like, did she kill him or not? I think that's up to you to decide whether you believe that or not. But either way, he died of a drug overdose on February the 2nd, and he was no more. He wanted to be buried with Nancy um, in his punk attire, but he was never buried next to her. I don't know why the two of them had, like, a death pact that if one was to die, the other would follow. Um, Again, that's why it's kind of hard to know, like, you know, because Sid was in the company of his drug-addicted mother... The speculation goes that she felt bad for Sid, that he was, like, suicidal and he wanted to die and so that she, like, did it herself kind of thing. I don't know. But either way, Sid was no more. After the breakup of the Sex Pistols and after the death of Sid Vicious, Johnny Rotten was doing his own thing with music, like I mentioned before. And the rest of the members of the Sex Pistols kept on using the name of the band. And they were releasing a number of singles between 1978 and 1980 for use in a movie that Malcolm McLaren was doing about the version of the story of the band. Weirdly enough, I don't know why. This was called the Great Rock and Roll Swindle, the name of the movie that Malcolm was doing for the Sex Pistols and their story. And apparently this was fabrication. This was not true at all. Johnny Rotten actually took them to court over the fictionalized film, and he won back control of the band. And in response to this, a counter film was made by Johnny Rotten that documented the real story of the Sex Pistols, and this was called *The Filth and the Fury*. And this was released in the year two thousand. Nineteen seventy-six saw a brief reformation of the Sex Pistols during the famous Britpop era, and they went on tour playing some live shows. A lot more live shows than they ever did before in the 70s mind you they were just doing a lot of stuff and i think people wanted to see them i think people wanted to see the sex pistols and they wanted that back in their life in a new way and a new generation to see them weirdly enough though in that time in this in the 90s they were still banned they were banned in northern ireland on the grounds of blasphemous content i don't know a weird 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 mark in northern ireland it makes no sense. It was the 90s at that point, but eh, what can you do? Throughout the 2000s, the band kind of played some festivals and shows here and there in North America, and, you know, they were trying to keep the punk scene alive. I think they'd done a great job of doing that. 2006 saw the band be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but apparently this was not what the band wanted. This was done without the band's actual consent. Surprisingly enough, um, the band did not want to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and be amongst, like, judges, like, judging their music. Like, does the Sex Pistols' music deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame kind of air? You know what I'm saying? Like, they they didn't want to be a part of that sham. They thought it was kind of like a sham. So when they won, the band had written a letter in explaining their absence from the ceremony and why they were against it. But what can you do? They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. (laughs) and that's a great thing but they they didn't want to be a part of that so unfortunately that's what they had to deal with too um so that's kind of really where we leave it with the Sex Pistols this October though of 2022 will mark the 45th anniversary of their debut album that is where I'm gonna leave it with the Sex Pistols I hope you guys enjoyed I hope you guys learned something that you didn't know about before That was fun. I love the Sex Pistols. They're a great band. I highly recommend you listen to them if for some reason you haven't before. But that is where I'm gonna leave it for this episode. I hope you guys had a great day and I will see you guys back next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye guys.